Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, friends. I know I see a lot of empty tables, so people are coming in, but we are going to get started anyway. For those of you who are in the room, oh, that got loud. Whoa. (laughs) All right, I need you to find your seats quickly, and I do have a couple of announcements for you. First one is our Embrace Grace Shower is coming up April 2nd. That's not this Sunday, but the next in this room. And I would love for as many of you as are able to just come and support these ladies. We have five ladies. Um, I think you guys have knocked it out of the park as far as the gifts. There might be a couple of gifts left, but they are mostly purchased. So all you have to do is just come and just be with us on April 2nd. It's at 3 o'clock in this room. So mark that on your calendar. Second thing is I want everybody to know about our uh, Cultivate Retreat that is happening April 29th. That's That's the Saturday right after we finish our Roman study. And it's going to be here in this room. It's a day retreat from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, April 29th. You will be getting a link in your weekly email this week to sign up. It really helps me if you can register. Um, It's $25, which covers a meal. It covers a book, materials uh, for the day. It's really worth it worth that expense, but if you can't, please talk to me. I don't want anybody to not come because of the money, but please sign up as soon as you're able, as soon as you know if you can come. It really helps us in the planning, so that's April 29th. Okay, well, I hope you guys had a great spring break. I had a really fun week off, and I'm ready to dive back into God's Word today, Uh, but I want to remind us where we ended before we left was such a high point, wasn't it? Romans chapter 8. I mean, some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, especially how chapter 8 ended. My favorite, one of my favorite verses. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you just want to say, amen, yes, that's so wonderful, so great. And then you think, why in the world do we go now into chapter 9? Why don't we just skip 9, 10, and 11 and just move on to chapter 12? Because we're so full of the Spirit in chapter 8, and then in 12, we're going to live by the Spirit. It just seems natural. But I want you to know that chapters 9 through 11 are part of the gospel story. They're incredibly important to Paul, and they're all about God's sovereignty. And so I want you to see these three chapters, as hard as they may be for us to plod through, as part of this wonderful gospel. So we are going to stand together and sing our gospel theme song again this morning as we move into this section of the text. We're going to read together Romans 9, 31 and 32, and then we're going to sing one gospel. So let's read this. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works.
gospel together. We are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your son. You have offered us mercy and compassion through him. God, we rest in your goodness and your faithfulness, your mercy to us this morning. God, would you help us as we talk about a difficult passage? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us insight? Would you move me aside? 
Would you speak to us? Anything that I say, God, that should not be remembered, would you help these ladies forget it quickly? And anything that you have for us today, would you press it on our hearts and would you, would you teach us and convict us and train us? We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. All right. Well, today, today I want to introduce you to my grandfather. His name is Terrell Oates, or Papa to me. And this is how I best remember him, with a cigarette in his hand and my grandmother by his side. He was and will always be one of my favorite people in all of the world. He and my grandmother bought an Airstream trailer and moved to Austin when I was a baby just to take care of me. So this is a picture um, at one of my birthdays. I was probably around four or five there. And my grandfather was at every single one of my birthdays until I left for college. He taught me to ski when I was a little girl. That's me, even though you can hardly see it. Uh, and he would usually ride beside me on a saucer, this is a round piece of plywood that he created, that, um, that he taught us all to ride in. And it's so sweet, I have this picture um, by my bed because I love to remember this. In fact, we spent countless hours on the lake together skiing and saucering like we're doing there when I was in college. And he and I could do all kinds of tricks on these things. We could turn around, we could turn around over our head, we could ride backwards, we could make a train and go back and forth over the wake. We were just, you know, hot stuff <laughs> on saucers. Well, we all ended up in Marble Falls when I was in the fourth grade, and he and my grandmother lived about a mile down the road from us. And I loved our special dates where he would pick me up on his motorcycle and take me to Dairy Queen for a dilly bar. I loved how he was waiting for me at the breakfast table really every day that I can remember before school with the jumble and the crossword puzzle that we would work together. I loved to be on his team when we played Trivial Pursuit because we always won. And you know that's really important to me. <laughs> I loved this man with all of my heart, all of my soul. It really makes me emotional just thinking about him. But even though my grandfather was the kindest man that I have ever known, as far as I knew growing up, he was not a follower of Jesus. He believed that Jesus existed as a good man and a teacher, and he read the Bible, but he didn't believe that he needed Jesus as his Savior and his Lord he didn't believe that the Bible had any real authority over his life, and I never knew him to be part of a church family. And this broke my heart. I spent so many hours trying to persuade this man I loved to follow Jesus. Well, Paul had people too, his Jewish family. And we read in Romans 9, especially in verses 2 and 4, where he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's in agony 
because so many of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus. Paul loved the Israelites just like I loved my grandfather. He desperately wants them all to be saved. I really don't want you to lose sight of this love and concern that fuels Romans chapters 9 through 11. Paul doesn't want anyone, Jewish nor Gentile Christians, to give up on the Jews. Well, in chapter 9, Paul anticipates a big question in verses 4 through 6 that he assumes that his, bro- his Jewish brothers and sisters in the audience might be thinking. Okay, if all of the covenants, the law, and the prophets were given to us, and if Jesus himself came through our Jewish line and still so many Jews have rejected Jesus, well then, has God's word failed? And then for the, Jew, for the Gentiles in the audience, if God failed the Jews, then how can we be sure that he won't fail us? So Paul's answer here, symbolically, is his emphatic, by no means. It doesn't say that, but that's what he means, and it's going to take him three chapters to explain that answer. The key to understanding God, according to Paul, is to understand that he is sovereign. Now, when we hear the word sovereign, we may think of an image like this one. British monarchs, figureheads of sorts, full of pomp and circumstance, seated on a royal throne, but really just putting on a show. But the truth is, there is only one supreme ruler possessing supreme power and authority, and that is God. Ephesians 4, 6 says, There is only one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He is self-existent and self-sustaining. He was not created, but instead created everything. Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. And then in Revelation 4, John saw this glorious vision of the throne of this sovereign king with angelic creatures all around it just praising him. And then 24 elders seated on smaller thrones around this throne saying this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans are all about this sovereign God. In chapter 9, we're going to learn three things about the sovereignty of God. First, we're going to learn that God makes sovereign choices. Next, we'll see that God's sovereign choices are always just and merciful. And then finally, that God's sovereign promises are trustworthy. So let's start with the first truth. God makes sovereign choices, and he has throughout the history of Israel. God made covenant promises to Abraham and to specifically chosen descendants, not all of his genetic descendants. It started when God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael and Jacob instead of Esau. So let's read together. You might open your Bible. It's not going to be up here. 
verses 6 through 13. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now remember back to Romans chapter 4, where we learned that God chose to make a covenant with Abraham, not based on anything that Abraham had done, but because God aimed to reveal his glory through him. Well, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But even so, we learned that Abraham had a son by his wife's maidservant, Hagar, whose name was Ishmael. And although Ishmael and his mother were both seen and heard and cared for by God, his descendants were not part of God's chosen people, Israel. Israel would come through Isaac, the son God promised to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Now, was Isaac better than Ishmael? No, but God chose to accomplish a unique purpose through him. Now, Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, by his wife, Rebekah. And by our human perspective and understanding, Jacob was the bigger troublemaker of the two. He deceived and manipulated his brother and his father into giving him his birthright that his his brother Esau actually deserved. Isaac himself favored Esau, yet God favored Jacob and chose him to lead his people, later changing his name to Israel, from whom the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel were born. Verse 8 says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are counted children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, it's shocking for us to read in verse 13. Jacob have I loved, and Esau I have hated. Well, I want you to see that Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 here. Malachi wrote them long after Jacob and Esau were dead. He wrote them to Israel, these words to Israel, after their exile in Babylon. And Malachi says this to Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So Esau's descendants, the Edomites, long after Jacob and Esau lived, would become bitter enemies of Israel. And so considering the context, God loving Jacob and hating Esau has nothing to do with the human emotions of love and hate for these two individuals. 
that has everything to do with God showing favor to one man's descendants, Israel, and not extending favor to another man's descendants, Edom. Now, is this choice based on Jacob's moral or behavioral superiority? By no means, right? Jacob lied and cheated and stole. Look at verse 11. But before either of these boys had done anything good or bad, God had told their mother, Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Why? Well, verse 11 tells us, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, God does not choose arbitrarily, but the reasons for his choices are his and not ours. They are based on God's purpose of election. An election is a buzzword that has caused Christians to argue for centuries. But I want us to just think of the word itself for a moment. What does it mean? Election simply means the right of making a choice. Whoa, sorry. We like to make choices. We like to participate in elections because we are made in the image of a God who makes choices and has every right to do so. The Bible is all about him and his glory, not about us. But at the same time, since we are his image bearers, God gives us free will and he wants us to exercise our choice to love him wholeheartedly. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God loves all people, his creation. He wants all of us to come to repentance, to recognize that we are all vessels of wrath, and yet are offered mercy in Jesus. But because he is all-knowing, he knows that not all will choose him. So the mystery and wonder of election is that those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, that is not fair. Isn't God being unjust to choose some and not others? Well, Paul anticipated this question in verse 14, and he says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And that leads us to truth number two. God's sovereign choices are always just, and his salvation is merciful. We are going to see this with two examples in chapter 9, Pharaoh and a potter. So look at verse 15 with me. For he says to Moses, and here he's quoting Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
Let's think about this for a minute. Mercy, by its definition, not giving people what they deserve is never fair. Does God owe anyone salvation? Of course not. We are all sinners, vessels of wrath, determined or deserving of death. And so if he owes no one, then he's free to give salvation to all, some, or none. At the same time, he's free to allow hardening of hearts as well. Paul uses an example here that really resonates with the Jews in his audience. Pharaoh was Israel's sworn enemy. He's the one who enslaved them in Egypt and refused to let them go with Moses, even after all of these great plagues had been brought upon him and his people by God. And so I want us to look back to Exodus. I want us to look at what seem like two conflicting statements about Pharaoh and see if it gives us any insight onto what this hardening of hearts looks like that, that Paul is talking about. So flip back to Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. Here the text tells us, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And then flip over one chapter to Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. This time it says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now how could both of those things be true? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? I think the answer is yes. In essence, I think God's hardening was giving Pharaoh over to his own hardness of heart. This is consistent with everything we learned in Romans chapter 1. But specifically Romans 1 verse 28 just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. God is free to give people over to rebellion, like Pharaoh, and God is free to save others. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So God is glorified both in salvation and in judgment. His second example is a potter with his clay. Look at verse 19 of chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, God has often referred to Israel throughout the Old Testament as clay in his hands. Jeremiah 18.6 says, Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And so Paul is reminding his Jewish friends that God has always had the right of a potter to shape his people and to use them for his glory. I was talking to a friend recently who gave me some unique insight from her own experience in a pottery class. She was surprised to learn that when you work on a potter's wheel, the clay has a lot to say in the process. 
So as a potter, you have to learn how to push on the clay from one side, but then allow the clay to push back from the other side. And as the potter, you simply guide it to its final purpose, to its finished product. The clay has a voice, but never a final say. And so like Israel, we are the clay in this scenario. And although God gives us a say, and he gives us a very real choice, we have to trust that our potter's final purposes are good and just. We surrender our right to decide how he will use us for his glory. I think this quote by John Stott is so helpful in this section. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If, therefore, anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. Well, our final truth is that God's sovereign promises are and have always been trustworthy. Paul reminds his Jewish friends that even their prophets foretold that God's promises have always included many Gentiles and a Jewish remnant. So let's look at verse 22 of chapter 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now Hosea and his wife Gomer had two children literally named, no mercy and not my people. That was their, their names. And over the course of Hosea's prophecy, God changes their name, one to beloved and one to my people. So Hosea was letting Israel know that, when, that there would be those who they considered not God's people, the Gentiles, who would later be called sons of the living God through the coming Messiah. Now God also told Israel by prophets like Elijah and Isaiah, that future descendants of Israel would reject this coming Messiah, but that God would always preserve a Jewish remnant. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Paul is reminding his audience that even though many Jews are, reject, are rejecting Jesus, and God himself, it has never been, nor will it ever be, all of them. Like we learned in chapter 4, God's righteousness has always been credited by faith. For Jew and now Gentile alike, revealed once and for all in the Son, Jesus Christ. 
The truth is that many Jews then and now stumble over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ himself, whom the prophet Isaiah promised would come as a part of God's marvelous plan of redemption. I love the text that Paul quotes here back in Isaiah 28. We're going to read a little more of it to give us some context. We're going to read verses 16 and 17 and verse 29. Isaiah is saying this about Jesus coming in the future. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And then look at verse 29. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Well, we started today with Paul's great burden for his people, the Jews. This chapter and the next two are hoping to persuade his fellow Jewish Christians to cling to Christ, not to turn back to their old identity as Jews, nor to give up on their Jewish friends who are rejecting Jesus. He's also urging the Gentiles in this congregation not to be arrogant, but to pray for and to welcome their Jewish brothers and sisters into the family of God through Christ. Well, as I think back to my conversations with my grandfather so long ago most of the time my approach with him was argumentative and arrogant he was very patient with me but he was never persuaded but closer to the end of his life when my my grandmother's mind was gone and she was in a nursing home and I was visiting from out of town he and I met for dinner and instead of the reasoned argument that I had planned to share with him once again, that night I felt truly overcome by the Holy Spirit. In tears, I told him how much I loved him and that I was so sorry for all the mean and judgmental things I had ever said or even thought about him and my grandmother. And he told me so lovingly through tears that night, Amy, I believe in Jesus. Now, he didn't explain much more than that, and I didn't ask. I just cherished my time with him that night. Well, he died sudden, suddenly the next year, and he was only 72. That would have been the last time that I saw him, and I didn't get to say goodbye and I never knew the true relationship or the true condition of this relationship with Christ that he had none of us really knows that about anyone and I like to think of him um, clinging to Jesus like he used to do to the ski rope I've had to trust God every day since his death that God is sovereign over all things, and that he loves my grandfather even more than I do. I think Paul is doing the same thing in Romans chapter 9 through 11. As we continue through these chapters, we may not agree on everything that Paul means or says, 
But I know that we can agree on the same heart of love that Paul has for his people. He leaves nothing unsaid to the Jews nor to the Gentiles. But in the end, just like us, he has to trust God with the hearts of the people that he loves. We all must trust God's sovereign choices, his just mercy, and his faithful promises. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your sovereignty, that you are supremely in control of all things. And we rest in you, even though you are very difficult to understand. God, would you help us when we don't? When we just don't understand and we, and we are struggling to believe what you say is true, would you help us just increase our faith? We know that your spirit is in us, that you are, you are teaching and training us in righteousness. And we are so grateful, God, that you've sealed us securely with your Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance with you. God, would you help us as we move through chapters 10 and 11? Would you bring us together in unity through that spirit? We love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day.